Okay, we are reading in Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all become old like a garment. And like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment... They will also be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. I stop there. Um, I preached from Hebrews 9 um, at the communion service on Friday evening and was just so struck by it. And I said, well, I must get into Hebrews here because it's just such an amazing book. Um, I expect that we will break it up sometimes with another topic but I do want to work through this book because it's I think it's my favorite book in the Bible it's just an amazing book about the Lord Jesus Christ you'll notice that the book starts quite differently from the other New Testament epistles the other New Testament letters all start with a greeting at least you know who wrote it Well, today they are arguing about whether Paul wrote Hebrews or not. I don't really care who wrote it, because the Holy Spirit inspired it. And without any introduction, without any formalities, he just jumps straight into this first statement, where he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So what is he saying? He is saying that in the old times, referring to the time of the Old Testament, God spoke through various 
prophets and in various ways he spoke to his people. He says, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. So what he is saying is that Jesus Christ is the final, full, ultimate revelation of God. God has spoken in many ways previously. And those prophets who spoke, spoke the true words of God. But none of them spoke in the way that God spoke to us when he sent his own son into the world. And it can never get better than that. Now, at this point, I must make a remark that some people use this verse, Hebrews 1 verse 1, as a proof text for the doctrine of cessationism. Cessationism is the doctrine that tongues and prophecy and all these gifts of the Spirit died out towards the end of the age of the apostles, or whatever, there's some difference about when exactly it died out. But they say, well, you see here, Scripture says that uh, God spoke to the prophets previously, but now he's spoken through Jesus, and now that he's spoken through Jesus, he's not going to speak through prophets anymore. Well, what's the problem with that argument? The problem with that argument is that even this letter was written after God spoke to the world uh, through Jesus Christ. There are prophecies given in the New Testament, um, and the big prophecy of Revelation, which was given many years after Jesus Christ was taken back into heaven. So, he's not saying that God has stopped speaking through prophets completely when he sent Jesus into the world. So, you can't use this verse as a proof text for cessationism. But, what cessationists are usually wary of, why they are so careful to say only scripture, don't add any prophecy or things like that, is because people come, everyone pretends to be a prophet, and they speak all kinds of words, and they belittle Jesus Christ. Not by openly belittling him, but by speaking about everything except Jesus Christ. And what this statement in Hebrews tells us, is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. It can never get better, as Rob said. God has spoken through Jesus. Don't ever think some other revelation is going to come which will surpass the revelation that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, anyone who claims to speak as a prophet, well, he should speak like the prophets of the old time who were predicting the Messiah. A prophet today should point you back to the Messiah. But a prophet is just going off on his own trip and telling you all kinds of things to keep you interested and to get your money. Um, don't bother with them. You can see if you read this letter, and even we can see it in the first chapter, that the people to whom he was writing were in danger of starting to reckon other things more important than Jesus Christ. What he deals with in the first chapter are angels. He speaks a lot about angels in this first chapter. And what's the point that he's making? He's saying Jesus Christ is infinitely superior to all the angels. So, why do you want to go off 
worshipping angels. Why do you want to make such a big ado about angels? Jesus Christ is way bigger, way more wonderful than the angels. And he deals with the priests of the Old Testament. He deals with Moses and with the law of Moses and all these things as we go through the letter. And what he's saying continually to these people is that Jesus Christ is so far above all these things. Why do you want to bother with those things? But he carefully paints a picture for them of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that's why I love this letter so much. It also gives us a very, it gives us a lot of insight into the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he deals with right in the beginning. In the first few verses. And that's why I love the letter so much. It's just this big portrait of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, center stage. Look at him. See his glory. Let's go on. He says, uh, verse 2, In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now he's once again picking up things which you read in John 1, that through Jesus, God made the world. John says, in him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And a verse that I've also referred to previously, where he says, no one has seen God the Father, but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. Jesus has made God known. That's the way that God has spoken to the world through Jesus. And Jesus is the one through whom God made the world. He made everything. But he also appointed Jesus heir of all things. That means that Jesus Christ, the man, because Jesus Christ, God, cannot inherit anything because he has everything from all eternity. But Jesus as man, because God became man, Jesus was both God and man at the same time. Jesus as man has risen from the dead. He's the first born from the dead. He is the first of the new creation. The first of those resurrected from the dead with resurrection bodies. And he's the first to inherit everything. The saints will inherit with Jesus Christ. Of course not in the same sense as he, because he's heir of all things. He rules over all things. But I just want to point out to you that Jesus is heir of all things in his human nature. And we'll deal with this concept of inheritance later in the book again. So he's just made these quick statements about Jesus and they deserve a lot fuller explanation and some of them we will see fully or more fully explained later in the book. But now he first deals with the exact identity and person and nature of Jesus Christ. And it's um, 
critically important that you notice what he says in verse 3. What does he say about Jesus in verse 3? I'm putting the question out there. What does he say about Jesus in verse 3? You can read it. Okay, we can just take that amazing sentence for now. So, if you read that, can there be any doubt left to you that Jesus Christ is fully God? He uses the most strong expressions you can ever imagine. He just, he doesn't just say Jesus is God, he, he says it so fully. He says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, or like the Amplified said, the sole expression of God's glory. So, what do you think about when someone says the glory of God? Do you think of this bright, shining brightness? Well, it's, you should think about that because there is this infinite, bright, shining brightness about God. But he is saying here that if you see Jesus Christ, you see the glory of God. Once again, John 1 says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of God. When you look at Jesus, when you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So you don't have to just picture a vague, bright, shining light. Scripture says that if you you see the character of Jesus, if you see who Jesus is and what he does, then you see the radiance of the glory of God. Now, the logic is very simple. Nothing but God can shine forth the radiance of God. It's impossible for any creature to fully express, to fully radiate the glory of God for the simple reason that no creature is like God. The highest archangel in heaven isn't like God. To put it very bluntly, The highest archangel in heaven. If we, let's put it like this. If you took the distance between the bacteria floating in your toilet and the highest archangel in heaven, and you took the distance between the highest archangel in heaven and God, where does the archangel fit in? Is he close to God or is he close to the bacteria? The answer is, he's right here, right on top of the bacteria. The archangel has much more in common with the bacteria floating around in your toilet than he has in common with God. Because he's a creature. doesn't matter how wonderful and magnificent and bright and shining and glorious he is, he's still a creature. 
But God is the creator. And I just use that illustration to, to tell you that creature cannot represent the glory of creator fully. But Jesus Christ fully, perfectly shines forth the glory of God. So that's the first statement that shows you the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. But then he says something even more profound. He says, and the exact representation of his nature. The Amplified says imprint. The Greek word is character. The Greek word is where we get the word character from, the the imprint, the exact representation. So what is he saying? Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. Therefore, when you see the nature of Jesus, you see the nature of God. When you see Jesus, you see God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Now, once again, there's no way that a mere creature, that a mere human or a glorified human can be the exact representation of God's nature. There's just no way. But this is what Scripture says about Jesus. Jesus is the exact, perfect representation of God's nature. And He is that because He is God. He shares God's nature. And then it says another amazing thing about Jesus Christ. And Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Actually, the the footnote in this um, translation says literally upholding. In other words, continuous tense. He is upholding all things by the word of his power. An old song said, without the love of Jesus, the stars wouldn't shine. And that's true. If Jesus did not keep this universe going, this universe wouldn't exist. It wouldn't be. He is the one that upholds all things by the word of his power. Notice his power because he upholds all things by the word of his power. God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And what this scripture is telling us, like John 1 tells us, is that there in Genesis 1, when God was speaking, he was speaking through his son. And Jesus spoke the word, the universe was. The universe still is today because he upholds the universe by the power of his word or by the word of his power. And he upholds all things. Now, this usually comes out in Colossians 1, but we can see it here as well. Something that's just amazing to me. Who was holding the nails together which held Jesus Christ to the cross. 
What does scripture say? Who upholds all things by the word of his power? So I put it to you that Jesus Christ himself was upholding the very nails that held him to the cross. He was upholding the Roman soldiers who were whipping him and crucifying him. He was not a helpless victim there. He laid down his life of his own accord. Um, the first time that thought struck me, says one must be really humble. That he upheld, well, he was upholding everything there. Nothing was happening without him upholding it. What a glorious Savior he is. But okay, that's not the point that uh, the writer is making here. He's just saying at this very moment, Jesus Christ upholds everything. That's why it's such utter folly to resist him, to reject him, to refuse, to repent, to say, I want a little more of the world, I want a little more of sin, just not now, I'll serve Jesus a bit later. It's utter folly and stupidity because he holds your very being in his hand. The only thing that's keeping you out of the flames of hell is a thin thread of His grace which He can cut off at any time because He's a Lord over you. He holds your very existence in His hands. He's not the kind of one you should say, oh, I don't want to listen to you now. But the writer writes these things for these people just to show them how great and glorious and powerful Jesus Christ Yes. So this is the nature of Christ, the person of Christ, who He is. And then the second part of the verse says what He has done. It says when He made purification of sins. What's that referring to? Well, the day that Jesus Christ hung on a cross and shed his blood for our sins. The idea of purification is referring back to the Old Testament um, where they had all these laws about sin offerings and what you had to do if you were unclean because of this or that. And Yuri is saying Jesus Christ made full and final purification for our sins. And a big part of the letter deals with that. So we'll get... Back to that. The first thing is he made purification of sins. He died on a cross for our sins. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So after he died, he was buried. On the third day he rose again and he ascended into heaven. He's been exalted. He sits at the right hand of God. The place of honor. The place of authority. And then verse 4 says, Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, there should be some question marks for you. Why does it say he became much better than the angels? 
Hasn't Jesus Christ always been better than the angels? Well, once again, this has to do with his dual nature. As God, of course, Jesus Christ has always been exalted above the angels. And in fact, the rest of the chapter deals with that a lot. But as man, he died as a man. He rose from the dead as a glorified man. He sits at God's right hand with his glorified resurrection body. And now he is exalted. As man, he sits in this place high above all the angels as ruler over everything. So in that sense, he has become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Even these false uh, teachers on TV know that they should say in the name of Jesus. They don't say in the name of Gabriel. Really, I mean, we only know about two or three of the angels' names and we know, well, what does it matter what the angels' names are? Acts 4 verse 12 says, there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Only the name of Jesus Christ. It's at the name of Jesus says Philippians 2, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One name exalted above all other names, the name of Jesus Christ. He is the one, the only. And now he goes on on this theme of the supremacy of Jesus Christ above the angels. He says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He says, Did God ever say that of an angel? He says, No. But God has said this of his son. Now to understand that, you, well, that's a quote from Psalms 2. Psalm 2 verse 7. Now you really should read the whole Psalm 2 to understand the context. But Psalm 2 is a prophecy about the struggle and the victory of the Messiah. The, the old Afrikaans translation has the heading, the state in with winning van die Messias. And if you read Psalm 2, you'll see that's exactly what it is about, about the, the anointed of the Lord. And verse 6 then says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That does not mean that Jesus was created or became the Son of God at some point. What this means is like Romans 1 verse 4 said that by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ was proved the Son of God with power. 
The idea of begotten here is that God has confirmed that he is the father of Jesus. It's not that he brought Jesus forth. The idea is God has shown his fatherhood of Jesus Christ. He's proved his parenthood. Saying, Jesus is indeed my true son. I am the father of Jesus. That is the idea. By resurrecting Jesus from the dead, God showed that Jesus is the Son of God. God was not ashamed to say, I am his Father. Now indeed, God proved that Jesus is the Son of God. The reason why I say it's so closely linked to the resurrection, you can just make the note, uh, that same scripture is quoted in Acts 13, verse 33. Um, you don't have to look that up now. You can look that up later. Um, but there you can also see that it's referring to the resurrection. So, back in Hebrews 1, verse 5, the first thing he says, he says, guys... Did God ever say about an angel, you are my son, today I have begotten you? He says, no guys, God never said that about an angel. So what is what is he saying? He's saying, forget the angels. Jesus Christ is the one, is the only son of God. The angels are not sons of God like Jesus is. Now this is an interesting thing to be writing to people who probably know the Old Testament well because one of the phrases that the Old Testament uses to describe angels is actually to speak of the sons of God. You can see that in Job 1, where we read that the sons of God presented themselves to God and Satan also presented himself along with them. The Old Testament sometimes uses the expression the sons of God for the angels. So in that sense, this statement is even more um, powerful because he's saying to people who probably know that the angels were called the sons of God, he's saying, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So when the Old Testament calls the angels sons of God, he doesn't mean that in the same sense as speaking about the one son of God who is one with the Father. Oh, and now that we're on that topic, did you know that the Jewish Bible says that God has a son? You can look that up in Proverbs 30, verse 4, where scripture says, Do you know his name or the name of his son? Quite an amazing thing. But don't want to go into that now. What I'm saying is he's making a very powerful statement. He's, he's saying to these people, the angels, the so-called sons of God. He said, to which of them did God ever say, you are my son, my only begotten, my beloved son, today I have begotten you. So that's statement number one. And then a second statement to prove that Jesus is the son of God. 
to prove the supremacy of the Son. The second part of verse 5, And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now, what some of these bad heretics have done with that and again, I will not even go into, but all that the and again is saying, he says, there's another place that God said something. That's that's all that the and again there means. He's pulling out another statement from the Old Testament about Jesus being the Son of God or something that speaks about the supremacy of the Son and that actually comes from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 where God was promising David that God would build a house for David and that God would set one of David's descendants on his throne and his kingdom shall be forever. This is after David said, I want to build a house for the Lord. Then the Lord said, no, you will not build a house for me. I will build a house for you. And I'll set one of your descendants on the throne. And he shall reign forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. That, in the first sense, was a prophecy about some about Solomon and the kings who would descend from David. But of course, all of them, they were only king for a time. They died. But Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. The son of David who shall reign forever. But what did God say about that, that um, anointed one who would come? God said, I will be a father to him and he shall be my son. So he's once again emphasizing the sonship of Jesus Christ. He goes on with more Old Testament scriptures. This is an amazing one in verse 6. When God again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So, in the first sense, well, the angels are worshipping him. So who's the greater? Obviously Jesus is the greater one because the angels are worshipping him. The lesser always worships the greater. God doesn't worship people. People worship God. It's not right for God to worship people. That would be insane. The lesser worships the greater. So the angels worship Jesus, so Jesus is much greater than the angels. But there's something profound here also about the fact that the angels must worship him. Why is that profound? Can anybody tell me? God doesn't share his glory with anyone. When John wants to worship an angel in in Revelation 19 or 20 or 21, somewhere, 19 years the angel says to him, don't do that. What did God tell the Israelites, the first commandment? You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not worship any other god. It is idolatry to worship anything but God. But if God then says the angels must worship Jesus, then God is saying, Jesus is God. 
Jesus accepted worship when people worshipped him. If he was merely a good teacher, he would have told them, don't worship me, worship God alone. But he didn't do that. He accepted worship. And even more strongly here, God says the angels must worship Jesus. So I think the Hebrews writer is making it pretty clear that Jesus is God. Verse 7 says, of the angels, God says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So the idea that they they move quickly, they are powerful, the angels indeed are wonderful, they have all sorts of powers, they can do wonderful things. But, verse 8, verse 8 of the sun, he says, look what he says of the sun, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, once I received a note from some Jehovah-less witness who was doing, well, who left a tract at my door. And she wrote in the letter, it is interesting that God the Father never called Jesus God. Well, it's interesting that she is wrong because she doesn't know what Hebrews 1 verse 8 says. But you can't blame her because her false cult has mistranslated the Bible on purpose there. Um, but here, God says of the Son, notice that, God is speaking, He's speaking of the Son, and He says of the Son, Your Son, uh, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God the Father calls Jesus God. And then He says, that the throne of Jesus is forever and ever. So Jesus has a kingdom which shall never come to an end. Jesus reigns forever and ever to the ages of the ages through all eternity. But he doesn't just reign, he reigns in righteousness. Because the second part of verse 8 says, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. The scepter, the stuff, the symbol of authority. But Jesus has a righteous scepter. In other words, he reigns doing right. He reigns in perfect justice. He is the only perfect and just king that there's ever been. There's a scripture in Proverbs that says, on righteousness a throne shall be established. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate fulfillment of that because Jesus is the only one who rules in perfect righteousness and his throne is established perfectly forever. It goes on to say in verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Firstly, Jesus loved righteousness. Jesus did what was perfectly right and just. 
in his humiliation as man, the time that he walked on earth, he lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He did perfectly right. All the time. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. Every moment of every day. There was not once in his mind the first beginnings of a sinful thought. He was tempted in all ways as we are, but he was without sin. Satan could have attacked him with all kinds of temptations and all kinds of evil thoughts, but from his own heart they never proceeded. Even the slightest wrong thought. He loved righteousness. But he didn't just love righteousness. He hated lawlessness. And you see, you can't have one without the other. You can't love holiness if you are apathetic towards sin. You can't love what is true and right if you are just lukewarm about what is wrong and evil. Jesus loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. Scripture says about God in Habakkuk 1 verse 13 that God is too pure of eyes to behold iniquity. God doesn't even want to see sin. So pure and righteous is He. And Jesus being the exact representation of God's nature was just like that. He hated lawlessness. Now think about this for a moment. How hard must it have been for one who loves righteousness perfectly and who hates lawlessness perfectly to spend 33 years among sinners who drink up iniquity like water. It must have been to his righteous soul continual torment to be surrounded by people who were continually sinning while he was perfectly righteous and just. The more you understand the holiness of God and the character of Jesus and the purity of the Son of God, the more you understand this, the more amazing it becomes that He was willing to be made sin for us on a cross. That He was willing to take our sins upon Himself. Uh, what's the guy's <coughs> name? Anyway, one singer, he had a song where he said, Who but God could make himself the very thing he could not look upon? He couldn't look upon sin, but he made himself sin on our behalf at the cross. He took our sins upon himself. He who didn't want to touch sin, he didn't want to come close to sin. I'm not saying he kept himself aloof from sinners, but I'm saying... He had no communion with sin, no fellowship with sin. He hated lawlessness with a perfect hatred. Yet he was, he was willing to take all our iniquity and all our sin upon himself at the cross. It's just amazing. But okay, the scripture here says, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, 
God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. This is a wonderful verse also in the following sense. When people hear about holiness, then they think, oh, that sounds so boring. That sounds so like, oh, you can't have any fun. You have to let go all these pleasurable things. You know, you have to live the strict, righteous, upright life. Oh. But what does this scripture say? This scripture says, loving righteousness and hating lawlessness is the path to joy. Now, of course, this has to do with eternity. Because it's in the past tense you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So, this does refer to after Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he's been anointed with joy. Hebrews 12 speaks about Jesus who endured the cross for the joy set before him. But it works that way for us as well. If you want eternal joy, if you want eternal bliss, if you want to be really happy eternally, then hate lawlessness and love righteousness here on earth. That might make your life a bit more difficult. But the joy that is held forth for us makes it all worthwhile. I was listening to one of my favorite contemporary preachers, a guy called Tim Conway, who was speaking to a bunch of youth, I think. And he was telling them, few people make it to heaven, and it's hard to get to heaven. He was um, using some scriptures which Jesus wrote. And he said, but what does it matter that the way is hard? At least there is a way. The angels don't have a way. The angels who sin don't have a way of getting into heaven. We have a way. And it's hard. Jesus said it's hard. Few people are going to make it. But at least there is a way. And the reward is so wonderful that what does it matter that it's hard? God has granted you a way to make it to heaven. And no matter how tough that way is, Pursue that way because the reward is all worth it. You don't hear a lot of preaching like that. Everyone wants to tell you that it's very easy to go to heaven. But Jesus didn't quite say that. Anyway, I don't want to go too far off topic. Jesus loved righteousness perfectly. He hated lawlessness perfectly. And God has anointed him with the oil of gladness above his companions. So, Jesus doesn't just reign in righteousness. He reigns in utter joy and gladness. It's good for us to think about that because you think about the greatness, the majesty, the splendor of Jesus, but you should also think about this, that there at the right hand of God where He's reigning, He has absolute perfect joy and gladness. And of course, that's the way that our eternity will be if we follow Him. And then, yes, 
and from the presence of God. And there's much to say about joy, uh, and we don't want to go into that tonight. But yes, God gives us joy here on earth as well in knowing Him. But compared to the joy that's to be revealed, it's still very small. And he goes on speaking about Jesus. Another thing which God says of the Son, He says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Now, he is quoting from Psalm 102 verse 25. It's not necessary to turn there, but I just want to check something. If you... um, Look at that. The psalm is addressed to Yahweh, the Lord. Jehovah, some people speak about. That's the Lord in all capitals. Um, so by quoting this, he is identifying Jesus Christ fully with the Lord of the Old Testament, with Yahweh the covenant God of Israel. So, he's really said this thing from every possible side. He's really made it very clear that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is Elohim. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is God. He is the God of Israel. He is the one that the Jews, that the Jews call God. He is the creator of all things. He's that one. So don't doubt ever his identity. What does he say? And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. So at the beginning, Jesus created. And the heavens are the works of your hands. Jesus created earth and heaven. They will perish but you remain. That's so beautiful to me. And they will all become old like a garment and like a mantle you will roll them up. The song said the clouds be rolled back like a scroll. It will actually happen. The sky will be rolled back like a scroll. This creation, this earth we live on, these heavens we see, they will all wear out. They're growing old. They will perish like a garment which has been worn too many times, it will grow thin and it will perish and the time will come when it's actually done away with. This present earth, these present heavens will be taken away, will be replaced. They will be rolled up and like a garment, verse 12 says, they will also be changed. But you, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Earth and heaven shall pass away, but Jesus Christ remains the same yesterday and today and forever. Not only kingdoms will come and go, not only thrones will come and go, not only people will come and go, the very earth will come and go, and the heavens will come and go, but Jesus Christ will not come and go. Jesus Christ stays the same from all eternity to all eternity. You are the same. 
From the beginning, when he laid the foundations of the earth, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there's something that I just love there with my scientific mind. The theory of relativity says that if there's not matter, there isn't time. So, before matter was created, there was no time. So, when God spoke the word, that really was the start of time. The very beginning. So, Genesis 1 verse 1 has got some very deep science in it. Um, In the beginning, before there was time, he spoke the word, created the heavens and the earth, and he is still the very same. Jesus Christ is the same at this moment as he was before earth and heaven was created. The earth has come, the earth will go. The earth will wear out, it will perish, it will be changed. But Jesus remains the same. And his years will not come to an end. He exists forever. He is eternal and he reigns eternally. And then he says, but to which of the angels has he ever said? Now the but there might throw you off a bit because he's not contrasting, he's not making a contrast. But I think you must understand this in the sense of emphasizing, it's again, but to which of the angels? So he's saying, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That comes from Psalm 110, verse 1. That's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus quoted it. He asked the Pharisees, whose son is the Messiah? They said, the son of David. He said, well, then why does David call him Lord? And he quotes this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, back in Psalm 110 verse 1, you see something about the Trinity, because you see God speaking to His Son. But both are called Lord. The one is Yahweh, and the other one is, um can't remember which Hebrew word, but it's not the same one. But there you see something of the Trinity, where David says, The Lord said to my Lord. So David called Jesus Lord. And what did God say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now the Hebrews writer is just saying, to which of the angels did God ever say that? Did God ever say to an angel, come up here, sit by my right hand and wait till I put all your enemies under your feet? No. God never said that to an angel. But he said this of his Son. The idea of sitting at the right hand of God is the idea of someone who's not flustered. It's not anxiously running around trying to conquer his enemies. He's simply waiting for the appointed time when his enemies will be made his footstool. The thing you put your feet on. When he will stomp on his enemies. When he will trample upon his enemies. 
And God has said this, not to the angels, but he said this to Jesus. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the supremacy of Jesus Christ above the angels. About, about the angels, he says in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So angels are ministering spirits. They minister. They serve. They are spirits. They are not flesh. They are spirits. They render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So even the angels, their job is to render service to those who will inherit salvation. But that's their job. They are servants. They are glorious and mighty and powerful servants, but they are servants. But Jesus sits at the right hand of God as ruler over all. And then I did read the first verse of the next chapter because you may see the flow of the argument. He says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to that, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. Then he goes on to speak, and we'll look at that, God willing, at a future time, about when angels spoke in the Old Testament, you didn't get away if you didn't listen. He says, now how can you hear about Jesus, who's much more glorious than the angels? and not pay attention. You must pay much closer attention to who Jesus is, to the gospel, to the character of Jesus, to the person of Jesus. Pay much closer attention. So just see the flow of the argument there. But um, the focus is on chapter 1, the supremacy of Jesus Christ above the angels. This is just the start to the book. So, we've seen basically two important things about Jesus tonight. His being, his character, his nature, his identity, who he is, in those um, first few verses, and then his absolute supremacy above the angels. A few years ago, there was quite a big um, fuss about angels. There were a number of books written about angels and things like that. It's not wrong to to talk about the issue of angels because it's scripture does say some things about angels. But uh, if you measure all that scripture says about angels and compare it with all that scripture says about Jesus, well, the ratio is very heavy. Very little about the angels, all about Jesus. And what this writer is telling us, why do you want to make a big fuss about the angels when Jesus Christ is so wonderful? And if you do study the angels, then study them in their proper place, under Jesus. But don't go worshipping angels. Don't go exalting angels. Worship Jesus Christ. Let all God's angels worship Him, and then let all the people who are much less than angels worship Jesus Christ, because He is great above all. The application in this book comes way later, after many, many chapters of teaching on the character of Jesus. But, 
the application is clear enough. We've actually seen one of them. There is a part of application in chapter 2. You better listen to this Jesus Christ. You better take him seriously. You better worship him. You better obey him. You better pay much more closer attention to him. Once again, I say, make sure that Jesus Christ is your vision. Make sure that Jesus Christ is in the center of your vision and that He is your vision, that He is your Alpha and Omega. Because He is the Alpha and Omega. But make sure that He is your Alpha and Omega. Make sure that you esteem Him highly above all. Make sure that you obey Him. Don't play games with His commandments. Don't play games with Him. Obey Him. Follow Him. Put your trust in Him fully. Don't hold out. And if you haven't surrendered to him, surrender to him. Amen.